we as humanists, it's like we carry the Ark of the Covenant. We carry the, the legacy, the wisdom, the accumulated insight into the human experience. And that is going to be utterly critical as the basic conditions of our humanity, of our species, are, are, are challenged and transformed. I mean, whether it's artificial intelligence or life extension or genetic manipulation, all of these things are in front of us and they are going to be part of our social reality in the next decade, the next two decades. And how we deal with them will literally determine the course of humanity. And it's our job, you know, and, and that certainly is MIT's job. But you are, yours are my job too, to right. take our education, our exposure, our training in that humanist tradition and equip our students to bring those insights to bear into the new world. Hey everyone, you are listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Frey, on Instagram at Professor S. Frey, and you can also find the podcast at Eudaimonia Pod. In this episode, I am joined by Roosevelt Montas of Columbia University. He is the author of a marvelous new book titled Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Unfortunately, Roosevelt and I had some pretty major technical difficulties recording this episode, and so this audio recording is not our best. However, I assure you it gets much better about five minutes in, so please be patient. And as always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am really pleased to be joined by Roosevelt Montas this afternoon. Roosevelt is Senior Lecturer in American Studies and English at Columbia University, and he is the author of Rescuing Socrates, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Welcome to the podcast, Roosevelt. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yeah, I'm excited. I really love your book, and I'm grateful to you for writing this book because I think it's the kind of book that needs to be written right now. And I highly recommend it for my listeners. How to describe this book? It's sort of part memoir, part criticism, part polemic. Is it a polemic? Is it fair to call it a polemic? I think to some extent, I, I called it a polemic somewhere. I wasn't sure of the word. There is certainly an argument, and there is certainly an argument with which some people would dis- will disagree violently. Yes. Yeah, it definitely... Well, because you're arguing for... I mean, I would say that you're arguing for a return to a kind of paideia in our universities. So a thicker, richer, normative conception of education, where we think about education as the cultivation of human intellectual capacities towards the good, right? So, and and if we're going to do that, if we are going to reject the current model of education. And maybe it would help to start negatively. (laughs) 
So sort of talk about what is wrong with contemporary education and why it needs to be corrected. And of course, when we talk about contemporary education, we're talking about our universities. You and I are in very different universities, but we are both, uh, we're both in higher ed. So let's start there. Yeah. Well, I think one has to make a distinction to begin with between one of the educational functions of the contemporary university and, and another. So one has to do with what one can broadly call liberal education, the equipping of individuals to fulfill any variety of roles. That is, that the, sometimes it's just called general education. And then there is the kind of more specialized function of the university where individuals are equipped to perform particular specialized tasks. You know, you can think of a doctor or an engineer or a business person. So those are two different functions of the university. There is at least one other big function of the university that's not pedagogical that has to do with research. So what I focus on in the book is this liberal education function of the university. That's what I think we have been failing at. Um, and one kind of quick way of naming that failure is that liberal or general education has been co-opted by specialization. So liberal education has always meant primarily education in the humanities, and the humanities within the university exist as disciplines, and those disciplines over the course of the last almost 100 years now have become increasingly specialized and increasingly oriented towards the pursuit of narrow questions that matter primarily inside the disciplines, the professionals in the disciplines. So this has meant stepping away from general education, stepping away from the kinds of questions, the kinds of, the kinds of studies, the kinds of cultivation that matter to us simply by virtue of our humanity, simply by virtue of being individuals coming up in the world rather than scholars in the making or, or specialists in the humanities in the making. Yeah, so I think part of it is that the self-conception of the university professor in schools like ours, so R1 research institutions, you know, where a department has a PhD program and an MA program, and where if you're if you're on the tenure track anyway, your entire professional life is oriented primarily around knowledge production where that means specifically that you have quantifiable outputs. And Which usually means number of pages. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so you have, you know, how many books and, and how many articles and how many people have cited your work and things like this. And so as that model has completely taken over and that that's been going on for a long time. I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't personally know any other system. <laughs> I mean, I've only been, I mean, I did my undergraduate at Indiana University, which is a huge state university, R1 school. And then I went to the University of Pittsburgh and now I'm at the University of South Carolina. So that's the, and well, and I had a few years at the University of Chicago, but, that, but that's kind of all that I've ever known. You know, yeah. so I've, I've never been in like a small liberal arts college or, or anything like that. And I've also never been at a school that had a meaningful core curriculum, mm-hmm. right? So all the institutions that I've been in have had this very watered down, choose your own adventure style <laughs> gen ed curriculum, 
where if you go to an advising office, there are like a bunch of boxes that you need to tick off. And then an advisor will help you see what's available for you, right? What will satisfy this? What will satisfy that? You know, it's like you're 18, And you're just like, I don't know, you know, that sounds kind of cool or maybe not too hard. (laughs) Who knows? And it's, and it's not coherent. And then that's supposed to be, it's not coherent. And of course, nobody really takes those classes too seriously. I think, including the professors who teach them, Right. Right. (laughs) you know, because the professors who teach them, I mean, we know that we are teaching to usually upwards of 150 students. So these are the classes Mm -hmm. that are jam-packed, you know, Mm -hmm. in auditoriums. Mm -hmm. And we know that the students aren't there because they want to be there, but because they're forced to be there. Right. And so we don't want to make it too hard. And, you know, by virtue of the structure of the university and the structure of incentives in the profession, that teaching feels like a distraction, a sideshow from what really matters to you professionally and within the institution. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, everybody knows that teaching is is just kind of about not getting a bad evaluation. And everybody knows that if you want to get a good evaluation, you give your students good grades. I mean, that this is like, this is so basic. And if you ever kind of deviate from this, you know, some kindly senior person will be like, what are you doing? (laughs) Like like you're getting bad evaluations because you're giving them C's. Stop doing that. Or you need to lower, you know, you need to lower your expectations. I mean, the first thing when I came from Chicago to here, the first thing everybody told me was, you know, look, you can't make, you have to stop making your syllabus hard. Mm-hmm. And and of course, that's an incredible disservice to our students. But right. right, the incentive structure is is to do exactly what I'm saying. And it's very difficult to get out of that way of thinking. And it's right. and, it, and it's absolutely institutional, right? Right. It is absolutely entrenched in, in the institutional culture and in, in the structures, the incentives. Then there is like a whole other aspect or dimension to the weakness of general education. And that's kind of more like epistemological that I think there is, in addition to these structural and professional disincentives, there is within the humanities disciplines, an intellectual, a dominant intellectual orientation towards the kinds of fundamental questions that a liberal or general education pursues. Questions about the kind of fundamental nature of human existence, about the nature of good and evil, the nature of justice, these broad foundational questions um, have within the humanities become sort of unapproachable or at least thought to be mere smokescreens for ideology or for Mm -hmm. politics or for kind of repressive structures. So there is beyond the institutional problem, a kind of epistemic uh, crisis in the humanities that has uh, cut liberal education at the knees. Yes. So I completely agree with this. I think that's more prevalent in your world than in mine. So you're in, you know, you're in an English department um, where kind of what we call posty toasty <laughs> <laughs> stuff reigns supreme. Whereas yeah. I'm an analytic philosophy where... Yeah. 
there is almost a kind of disdain for it. And although, although I do think that's changing a bit, but certainly not changing enough. Well, right. And a lot, I, I mean, I'm in the English discipline, but I think a lot of, a lot of what has happened in the discipline has kind of earned this reputation for lack of rigor, lack of clarity, intellectual acuity. There's a lot of that. And Mm -hmm. it's not surprising that from other disciplines that are more concerned with analytical rigor, such as analytic philosophy, and often the social sciences, uh, especially the quantitative social sciences, will look at literary studies with that kind of intellectual disdain. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, so there's the fact that, right, we don't really believe in the true and the good and the beautiful. And so if that's true, then it's impossible to make the case for a liberal arts education in the precise way that you want to do it, which is the old fashioned way. So I think the first source that you cite is Aristotle in the politics, right? Where he says <laughs> yeah. a, liberal, a, a liberal education is one for the free citizen. Mm-hmm. And that actually Aquinas takes up that, that exact definition right. in his own writing. And I'm very attracted to that, but I find that, and, and, and other people are very attracted to it. Mm-hmm. Like if you go out and talk to the normies, they're fully on board, right? Mm-hmm. They're just like, yeah, that sounds great. But when I talk to my fellow professors or I talk to university administrators, you get immediate vociferous pushback. And one of the first things that people will say is it's anti-democratic, it's elitist, it's tied to ideals about, you know, the gentleman. Mm-hmm. And so it's mm-hmm. also sexist. Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm sure that you've heard all of this. Sure, um, sure. So how do we combat that idea that you are asking for a return to something that is exclusive and hierarchical and undemocratic? Yeah. I've been using a lot this phrase that I don't know where it originates, but I've been surprised the last couple of weeks just how many, on how many occasions this phrase comes into, into is, is bears on, which is nothing is too good for the working class. Sometimes sometimes I, uh, uh, as a joke, but I think that the first thing one has to recognize is that there is indeed an aristocratic, exclusionary, even oppressive pedigree to, to liberal education. It used to be, it was conceived in a slave society in Athens as the education for the free. You know, when we think about Athens as a democracy, which it was, it was just a democracy for a minority. It was a, a, a democracy for, for citizens, uh, for male, full citizens who were only males. Uh, there was a huge slave population. So, you know, it's not a free society. It's just like a free segment of the society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where liberal education begins. And liberal education and indeed just university education for most of the history of the institution has just been for an, for an elite. So one has to recognize that. And for um, men, obviously. And for men, for men, exactly. So that's one place to begin is to recognize that there is this, this historical imbrication, some people would say, and this historical intertwining of liberal education and uh, various forms of aristocratic elitism. That alone is, however, not, not grounds upon which to either reject and skew liberal education. On the contrary, the whole trajectory of our kind of enlightenment, 
humanism has been towards equality. It has been towards bringing down the the hierarchies that have kept some people excluded from from goods that would be otherwise available to them and that are and that are you know guarded by by some. That is, liberal education carries forth the democratizing impulse. The idea is, well, this is this used to be for the for an aristocratic class of free people, free men. So therefore, in a democratic society, let's not do it. The idea is in a democratic society, let's make that available for everybody. Because that that education is still oriented towards precisely the kinds of responsibility that come to democratic citizenship, precisely the kinds of skills, knowledge, perspectives that you need to meaningfully participate in a democratic society, to meaningfully engage and contribute in the project of autonomy, in the project of creating our future together, in the the project of self-governance, exactly the things that you need for that are in that aristocratic education that was for free men. Because those were the men who were meaningfully participating in the political construction of the society. Now that we have opened that up and that we are committed to opening that up, we absolutely need also to bring forth that education that was designed to prepare individuals to fulfill those roles. So in fact, a democratic society makes it necessary for us to take the liberal education ideal and democratize that as well. And that's what this is about. It is not about liberal education for some. It is about liberal education for all. Mm-hmm. That's what, what that's what I argue in the book. And I think that's the the kind of what the moral imperative on uh, on the academy and on us professors. Well, that's interesting because um, you're not from an aristocratic background. Um, and and your book is is like I said, it's part memoir. So throughout your argument, you talk about in in a very personal way about how liberal education changed your life, you know, from the first, I think when you were a teenager and somehow like, did you find, did you find Plato like in the, in the trash? (laughs) I did. As a sophomore in high school, I found a a copy of a collection of Plato's dialogues that cover the last days of Socrates life. And, and, uh, read them in earnest and changed my life. Yeah. I, that's so amazing. Um, I mean, that, that s- someone else's detritus is, is another man's treasure, but um, yeah. yeah. So you start reading Plato in, in high school and was it high school? Yeah. Yeah. And then somehow you end up at Columbia. It was kind of through a special program. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you want to say something about that program or, or how yeah. you ended up? Yeah, sure. So um, I, I immigrated to the U.S. from the Dominican Republic. Um, I lived in a kind of rural village in the Dominican Republic. I was uh, just two days shy of my 12th birthday when I landed in New York, not speaking any English and, you know, just never having been close to an airplane before, never have, having traveled far away from the town where where I had grown up, et cetera. And I went to the local public schools in New York, bilingual education. As a general rule, New York City public schools, except the kind of specialized high schools, are overcrowded and underfunded and and generally disastrous. And um, 
So, but I did bilingual education for two years, seventh and eighth grade, and then went into the local high school. The local high school, John Bowne High School in Flushing, Queens, turns out to be at a kind of nexus of hugely diverse population in Queens. Queens is the most diverse of the five boroughs of New York City, and Flushing might be the most diverse, kind of the epicenter of at least diversity in terms of immigrants, well, socioeconomic too, but it's mainly working class immigrants. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up in a school that was over, overwhelmingly immigrant. And many of those of those students, like myself, had a kind of serious orientation to their studies. We did our homework. We kind of had a respectful sort of deference to the teachers, took our education seriously. So I was just extraordinarily fortunate to end up in what, in some ways, accidentally turned out to be a high school with, with a track of real academic rigor and seriousness. And it was that that opened the door for me to to go to Colombia. I didn't know what the Ivy League was. I didn't know really what I was getting into, except that Colombia was a school I could go to on the subway. I wouldn't have to, again, be uprooted from my community and go somewhere strange. And that it was a very good school. That's kind of all I knew. I was admitted to Colombia through a program called the Higher Education Opportunity Program, which is a New York State-funded program that provides generous financial aid and academic support to students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, who are both both academically at risk and socioeconomically needy. So I went to Colombia through that program and, uh, you know, was was slammed with Colombia's core curriculum. Colombia has this venerable, kind of the oldest general education program in the country that continues to be essentially a great books program. You can might quibble with that with that definition, but the two central courses in the program are year-long courses in which students read from Homer, from ancient Greece to contemporary, in common, in seminar style books. So first week at Columbia I was reading the Iliad, then the Odyssey, and then Sophocles and Aeschylus and Euripides. The core curriculum was absolutely intellectually transformative for me. And it was one primary way in which I made, made sense of myself in this world that I was in this, in, both in America, but in an Ivy League institution. It was an awakening of the most profound sort that I experienced in college. And that awakening was kind of midwifed through the reading and discussion of this text that I did in the core curriculum. Right. So obviously you're aware that a lot of people now will say that that kind of curriculum is just a kind of indoctrinization into white supremacy and that it's harmful uh, to minority students like yourself. And I suppose that they might say, well, even though it was transformative for you, we can't extrapolate from that and say that it's good, maybe somehow in spite of its being white supremacist, it was transformative for you. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are mostly dead white men and it's too exclusionary. And, And then I think there is tied to this argument, the idea that these texts have been appropriated in ways that are oppressive. And yeah. not liberatory. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that it's a kind of violence mm-hmm. to impose them on minority students. I think this is the view of Padilla Peralta. 
mm-hmm. at Princeton, for example. And I know that you recently had a conversation with him, which I, I wasn't able to go to because it was in New York City. <laughs> um, so maybe you maybe you brought this up to him. But what do you say to that kind of thing? Um, let me put for a moment aside the question of Daniel Danillas Padilla's Peralta's position, because I, I don't think it is exactly that position that says that this is a curriculum whose kind of imposition or, or continuance is an act of violence or exclusion of minority students. I certainly encounter that position, but I should say that I've it's a very hard position to argue. And there is a kind of reflexive, superficial view that says, oh yeah, these texts are mainly written by white men, by Europeans. Um, <laughs> Europe has um, a tradition of, of racism and enslavement and oppression and subjugation of women. So therefore, these texts must somewhere, somehow be the vehicles and conveyors of those, those historical realities in, in, in European American history. Um, so there is a kind of facile, superficial equation of those things. But if you actually read the books, if you study them, if you debate them, if you use them as a foundation for general education, then it will be very hard to sustain that point of view. Because in fact, the, the, the large thrust of this tradition is towards notions of the value of individuals, of individual liberty, of equality, of gender equality, that in fact, those ideas emerge from that tradition. Of course, they're not there at the beginning. Those, those notions have evolved. They have evolved through struggle, through debate, through sacrifices of individuals. But that tradition, that liberatory thrust is in that tradition. That's where the idea of democracy emerges. That's where the idea of human rights emerges. That's where the idea of gender equality emerges. That's where the idea of equality of all people emerges. So, and this is not to say that this loosely speaking Western tradition where these ideas have emerged is the only place in which those ideas have emerged. There are other trajectories of of ethical and political thinking that have also nourished those ideas. But in our society, meaning the United States and certainly Europe, but also much of other parts of, of the world, those political ethical commitments that structure society and over which we struggle and which and which our politics are about emerge from that tradition. They're 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 nourished and cultivated in that tradition. So the argument that because it is dominated by the white man, it that tradition is a simplistic conveyor of, say, racism or sexism, patriarchy. It just doesn't hold up when you when you look at the text and when you study the tradition. To come back to Danel, Danel Padilla Peralta and I both teach in this summer program for low-income students who wish to be the who hope to be the first in their families to attend college. We teach this program, this high school, this program for high school students at Columbia in the summers. We teach Plato, Aristotle, Thucydides, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, and some American texts. And we do that because we recognize the liberatory power of those texts. We recognize how those texts empower and enable a certain kind of political and civic agency for our students that is sorely lacking among students from that kind of socioeconomic signature and that is sorely lacking in the education that they typically have access to. Now, that's a community that Danelle and I share. And, and when people, people who, who kind of Danelle's public image 
has been kind of forged in this inner fight in the, with the discipline of classics that he's, that he's having. Right. And the discipline of classics is kind of different than just the value of reading classical texts. That is that their, their particular, you know, histories and practices. And, 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 you know, as you probably know, classics is the, has been the most exclusive, the most elitist discipline in the university for a long time. And, and kind of the, the, the guards of that exclusivity have been the requirement of proficiency in ancient languages, usually before you get to college. If you are not proficient in, in Greek and Latin by the time you get to college, it's very, very hard to even major in classics, much less pursue a career in this, in, in, as a scholar of the classics. So that, um, had, that, that had maintained the discipline of classics as kind of a bastion of a very exclusive and elitist kind of mm, subculture. Um, and I think it is, it is against that that Danell has, has run into and has um, kind of arrayed himself in battle. Um, you know, I'm not here to defend Danell. I don't, I don't agree with everything that he, that he stands for and, and with the way that he has waged that battle. But I do, however, find that I, uh, that I need to distinguish between that battle internal to the classics and the very broad idea of the power of these texts as tools for general education, which Danielle certainly shares and acts on by his teaching activity. Well, that's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you drew that distinction because I think, um, yeah, I, I have a lot of conversations with people in the classical education world broadly, broadly construed. And, you know, I, and, and I think that in particular, the, the Black women that I tend to talk to within that world are pretty um, annoyed, <laughs> I guess maybe is the word with Danielle, um, precisely because I think the, the perception is rightly or wrongly, um, you know, based on um, mostly, you know, journalist profiles of him, but also some interviews that I've seen with him where he, he does talk about these texts doing a kind of violence to students and how exactly he squares that with, with teaching them to low-income students is, is something for him to work out, not me. But it, at least in one instance that I can think of in an interview, he talks about how reading some kind of Roman text and the way that it talks about women and slaves would be a kind of violence to students. And, and I think this was something that was constantly said to me when I was an undergrad. You know, how could I love Aristotle, for example, because he has such a low... Or how could I love St. Augustine, who is someone that you talk about in your book? Because Augustine really does have some pretty low... <laughs> opinions of women and it doesn't come up so much in the confessions but it definitely comes right. up in other places right and yeah and, so, and sometimes augustine yeah. says some pretty nasty things about women and of course aristotle just thinks that women are too stupid to string a thought together and barely human it seems that's that's why men need to do everything <laughs> need to make decisions for them and you know my response was always like well, I mean, I, I guess I'm smart enough to know the difference between <laughs> what he's saying that's true and yeah. what he's saying that just reflects like the culture that he's in and what he knows he, he, or thinks he knows about women. But it's also just the case that like 
if if you don't educate women, like it's really easy to think that they're dumb, right? Right. right. Now it's impossible for us to think this anymore, right? Right. Um, because, because it turns out that when you do educate us, like we're we're not dumb. It's just mm-hmm. a fact now. And so, why should I feel threatened by some distant culture where women were not even second class citizens? I mean, they just weren't even, you know. Well, they're they're basically like a kind of property, right? Um, right. Yeah. It's like you know, on on the, it's like is that horrifying? Well, yeah. I mean, but on yeah. the other hand, like I already knew this. Like it's right. not. It's, I mean, I I am able to understand the past. Yeah, <laughs> like it doesn't. I'm, it's right. not existential for me. And we have to we have to understand it because. So, what is the value of us? reading and understanding with some depth Aristotle's attitudes towards women and the arguments and the observations upon which he bases his judgments about women's inferiority. The value of that is not that is not to affirm those views, is not to propagate those views. The value of that is in, is in understanding how it is that we ended up where we are, how it is that we did end up with, you know, 2,000 years, well, probably just since Aristotle, you know, 2,500 years since Aristotle, how is it that we ended up with 2,500 years of systematic exclusion of women? Why did it take uh, 2,000 years for the evident reality of women's intellectual equality to men becomes uh, socially, you know, socially accepted, socially sanctioned? That is, those ideas from the past, from Aristotle and from others, from Augustine, from even other thinkers that we tend to think of as, as, as more enlightened, you know, enlightenment thinkers or something. We read those to understand the mechanisms of exclusion and oppression that have shaped the world in which we live today. We read that to understand also the ways in which those paradigms have been challenged from the beginning, the ways in which there are people, you know, Aristotle is horrible on women, but Plato, not nearly so. You know, Plato comes out and says, you educate men and women in the right way and you're going to have essentially the same kind of flourishing. You're going to have women fulfill every role in society. You're going to have women be the rulers because their nature is essentially capable um, of whatever men are capable of. So you don't have a monolithic tradition. You have a tradition of debate. So we cannot kind of whitewash the past and imagine there has been no moral evolution. We have to understand that there has been and that, and that there continues to be moral evolution. And by the way, speaking about moral evolution, one of the other really important things about reading those old texts, despite, and in some ways because of their, the moral blind spots that we can see from here, is that it allows us to imagine or come to, come to terms with the fact that we probably have moral blind spots. Right. That if these people from the past were able to, in some areas, achieve such wisdom, penetration, such such extraordinary insight, while nourishing this obvious to us huge kind of lacuna of, of, of morality, it's unlikely that we don't have some version of that ourselves. It's unlikely that we also don't have lacuna like that. So it gives us a certain kind of, it should give us a certain kind of humility to see in in the ancients very, very evident 
limitations and failings. Right. And I think, I mean, one thing that I really love about your book is that your whole argument is interwoven with personal reflection and memoir. And, and in some ways it's, it's very moving. And I think I can identify with a lot of, of where you're coming from. I mean, I'm not an immigrant, but I'm also from a working class background. And I got to the university and realized like, I'm not educated, <laughs> like, yeah. like not even in the most basic level, despite the fact that for me, like, you know, I did so well in high school and yet I wasn't educated. Right. And mm-hmm. on, on, on mm-hmm. some meaningful level and, but I didn't go to Columbia. And so I really had to, and I wanted something like the education you received, but I mm-hmm. had to kind of cobble it together myself. Mm-hmm. And, and I was largely self-taught and, you know, my peers weren't reading Augustine and they didn't, you know, I like couldn't really relate to them. I mean, I basically like lived in the library as an Mm -hmm. undergrad, just reading Mm -hmm. this stuff, but not because it was being assigned to me, Mm -hmm. but because I thought that an education, educated person should know this. And I wanted to be an educated person. And in some sense, I do think my university failed me, mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least they just, they, they put all the burden on me. And I think it's kind of like, given my class background, it was like a really unfair burden. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. Help me out more. Yep. And, yep. and one thing that you argue, like so far you've been arguing that it's democratizing and it makes us free. But you also say that the primary goal of this kind of liberal learning is self-knowledge or Mm -hmm. self-understanding. And I think that deeply resonates with my experience as an undergrad. You know, I kind of realized early on that not only did I not know history or Mm -hmm. like the history of ideas or anything like that, but I also didn't really know who I was. And yeah, it turns out like after reading this stuff, I, I became a completely different person. I mean, in my case, it's interesting because in some ways I'm like the opposite trajectory. So you sort of, (laughs) your liberal education made you lose your faith. Whereas I went from an atheist to a Roman Catholic, (laughs) but I think what's kind of beautiful about that is that the thing is you don't know <laughs> where yeah. this kind of education is going to take you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that this is a kind of wonderful thing about it. It is this yeah. kind of exploration, this, you know, relentless pursuit of the truth. Truth is something mm-hmm. that I definitely still believe in. And I think that without a robust conception of the truth, I I, just, I yeah. don't know what an education is for. I don't I don't really know what you're pursuing other than your personal ambitions at that point. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really tough for me for a while uh-huh. to realize uh-huh. that like maybe everything that I thought I thought wasn't true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that hits you pretty <laughs> pretty hard. You know, because, because, and one book that just definitely changed my life, and I probably wouldn't be a Catholic without it, is The Confessions. I mean, that one hit me 
maybe the hardest. Yeah. In part because Augustine is just very relatable. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, I had the same. I had the same. The same experience with Augustine. Augustine made me. I feel like I walked out of Augustine being a more spiritual person. At the same time as being a less less of a Christian, Augustine kind of allowed me. And this is, you know, everybody, everybody's got their own trajectory. And I think it's a, a, a as, you, as you put it, is a is a testament to the human power of these books that what they do to you doesn't convert you into something. What they do to you transforms you in a way that unfolds you, unfolds you as who you are. Right, so Augustine can change your life without turning into a Christian, as it did for me, or it can transform your life by turning it by turning you into a Christian. Augustine uh, deepened me um, in really extraordinary ways. It's like after reading Augustine, I understood that you could be a profoundly religious person and an intellectual. Yes. And, you know, for many people, that's obvious, yes. but that was not obvious to me. No, it wasn't obvious yeah. to me either. I mean, I just thought religious people were stupid and and weak. Or I was like a new atheist before there were new atheists. And that was because the religious people that I knew who were all like really nice, it just didn't seem to have any arguments <laughs> for what mm-hmm. they believed or they just and, were, you know, they seemed very parochial to me. And, and you read Augustine on your own or did you do it in a class? Um, I read Augustine on my own. So, well, I read the confessions on my own. I uh-huh. I was introduced to Augustine in my medieval philosophy class, but we didn't read mm-hmm. the confessions probably okay. just because it's really long. Um, so we read excerpts of various of his writings. I think the only actual text we read was the De Libero Arbitrio. So on, okay. on free will. Okay. Um, which yeah. is like this easy dialogue. It's it's kind of like Augustine doing a platonic dialogue. Right. So it's great. It's uh, it's so it's so engaging. It's so accessible. Yeah, but then but, I know, knew I knew yeah. that like you have to read the City of God and you have to read the Confessions. So I did that on my own. This gets back to you know something at the beginning of our conversation, which is that one of the ways in which university general education is failing is in not giving people the opportunity to have the kind of encounter you had, right? And if you want to have, if you want to, say, study the great books, if you want to study, you can take a history of philosophy class or you can take a medieval literature class, you can take courses in the classics department, but you have to seek that out on your own and probably at the expense of some like practical, you have to major in the classics or major in philosophy, but maybe you want to be an engineer, Maybe you want to be pre-med. Maybe you want to go to law school. And those are completely legitimate paths to pursue in the college. Then we should not make liberal education or, or the tradition of liberal learning accessible only to people who are willing to major in it. That is, we need to find ways to make general liberal education available to all. Um, and this is, you know, as I as it has already come up, I work a lot with low-income students first in their families to attend college. And those families and those students urgently need to come out of college equipped to make a good living. College is for them not only a way of cultivating their personhood, but it is a way to, to get out of poverty. And we must not tell those people, you can cultivate your humanity through study at the expense of a career that will get you a job when you graduate. We have to eliminate the opportunity cost of liberal education 
for everybody so that students like you don't have to spend their whole life in the library and do extracurricular study in order to encounter the tradition, but that it's there. It's there as the equipment of every undergraduate education. Right. I mean, so one thing that you stress in your book is you kind of emphasize the teacher, right? So you're like, Mm -hmm. look, you know, the books aren't magical on their own. You need to have a good teacher who can really like guide the student and help them to see what's valuable. I'm wondering, you know, as we think about how to bring back, as we think about how to bring back the sort of liberal education that you're advocating for, how would we train teachers? Because we're certainly not doing that in graduate school. And in part, that's because institutionally, nobody really cares if you're a good teacher. Although I think in the humanities, we need to return to that. Yes, because we uh, can I, we can absolutely no longer guarantee a steady stream of majors. Those days are long gone. So, I mean, how do you think we train professors to do this, especially yeah. given the fact that I think the vast majority of the university professors haven't read these books? Yeah. So. The first thing that one needs to do, as you point out, is um, include training into teaching as part of the of the of the PhD, which we don't do. We do no, not. We, we do not set out to train teachers. We set out to train researchers. Right. That, and the PhD degree is the research degree. So we set out. We we educate our PhD students as if they are going to be only researchers. And then we throw them in the university and or sometimes throw them into jobs that are primarily teaching, you know, for for teaching load or something or a very teaching intensive work. And then it's kind of, you know, do as best you can. And because there's academic freedom and tenure, nobody's going to intervene there. Nobody is going to. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing that I would add is that if you do go to like one of these excellence and teaching centers or whatever that's probably mm-hmm. at your university, the pedagogy is is very technocratic. Right. And insofar as it's not technocratic, it tends to be social justice oriented. Mm-hmm. And they're actually, right, you, you do learn a lot of stuff about decolonizing your syllabus and about not just having a predominance of dead white men mm-hmm. and it's stuff like that. It's not right. about how to. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an ineffective attempt to make up for the fact that people are not, are not taught that as part of their training. And when you have, you know, administrators talking to faculty about how to teach the status differential is just too overwhelming to to have the condition for effective instruction, right? For effective teaching. But, you know, back to the, to the, to the earlier question. So the one thing we can do is just intend to train teachers as part of, part of the graduate program. The other thing that we can do, and, and this is something that, I, that I've seen at Columbia. So Columbia, um, the core curriculum teaching staff includes PhD students, so ABD students, students who are at the dissertation writing stage. And that is hugely important, both for the training of the graduate students but also because these graduate students then often have the same kind of intellectually transformative experience that the students are having mm-hmm. and then go on to to their jobs, go on to their professions, bringing that in. And, and, and they have been, I know, many cases in which in their 
professional, wherever they are, a research or a research university or liberal arts college, wherever they are, alumni of the teaching faculty in the core attempt to either teach courses like that or even sometimes start programs like that. So including the opportunity to, to, to become part of a, an intellectual and pedagogical community as a graduate student whose mission, whose orientation is undergraduate liberal education. That is hugely important too. I mean, and it's, it's part of the mentorship. It's part of the kind of apprenticeship that graduate school is supposed to be like. But in most places, there isn't even a context in which a graduate student can get a kind of apprenticeship, that kind of mentorship. The other thing I, I want to say on this topic is that, and again, you, you alluded to this, humanities departments are realizing slash need to realize that their future is in undergraduate general education. That the, the, the future of the disciplines is going to be not in recruiting majors, but in giving non-majors, STEM students, pre-professional students, all kinds of, all kinds of non, non-majors, a real intellectual transformative encounter with the humanist tradition. Right. That's where it's at. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. To the extent that humanities departments don't realize that they will suffer and, and perhaps disappear, to the extent that they do, they can really revitalize general education at the undergraduate level. But, you know, I'm not against research. Some people read me as being against research, but research is a specialized function of the humanities profession. The humanities profession has to be fundamentally oriented towards general undergraduate teaching with research being one extracurricular activity that you might pursue meaningfully and and uh, satisfyingly and importantly. Okay, this is good. This is a this is a point for us to segue into talking about this hit piece on your book that came out <laughs> in The New Yorker. So this is by Louis Menand. What's so great about great books courses? And I mean, he's he's talking about your book and he's trying to place your book in a kind of intellectual lineage, right? So he puts you alongside Bloom, which I think in some ways makes sense and in, in some ways right. really doesn't. Right. I think it makes sense to the extent that you and Bloom are, are in very different ways trying to articulate the need for paideia. I certainly prefer your approach. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to Bloom's. But although I don't hate Bloom, I'm I'm not a total mm-hmm. Bloom hater, but I understand the various ways in which it's obviously problematic and not right. that helpful. But he he sort of draws out this tension, and that is the tension between this kind of generalist, great books, education, and research scholarly activities. And yep. so he sort of accuses you of being against the modern research university without sort of fully being self-aware or, or reflective about this. And so I just wanted to invite you to, yeah, to respond to this. And suppose that my provost, assuming I ever get one again, reads your book and is like, yeah, I really need to, I I really, we really need to adopt a core or something. 
Is, is that somehow at odds with our status as an R1 institution? Is there really a, a conflict here? Or yeah. can we have the best of both worlds? Yeah, you certainly, I think you, the best of, of the best world requires both and the best university requires both. So, you know, you can, you can tell your provost, I think, um, uh, with confidence that you will produce better professionals if you liberally educate them, that you will produce better STEM people if you liberally educate them, that you will just produce better citizens if you liberally educate them. That liberal education does not come at the expense of the knowledge building and discovery and technology and application of, of knowledge. On the contrary, it lays the foundation for the most innovative, the most exciting, the most meaningful kinds of applications of knowledge. Menand, you know, the, the pieces, you called it a hit job, it's full of mischaracterizations and, and willful misreadings and kind of rhetorical sleight of hands that one could respond to. But what Menand is right about something basic. I mean, my book really, I think, touched him in a sore spot. He is right that I am advancing a vision of undergraduate liberal education that is fundamentally at odds with his own, with his own and fundamentally at odds with his professional identity. And, you know, Menand was involved in one of the overhauls of Harvard's um, general education curriculum, general education program, one of the overhauls of its, I think, very ineffective um, and and kind of a junk general education program, which is not unusual in liberal in uh, in research universities. So Menand is right to recognize that we have a fundamentally different vision of undergraduate education. But that difference, it's not because I'm not aware of how countercultural the practice of liberal education is within the research university. It's because we simply disagree about what the liberal education component of a, a university education should be. My vision has to do with the cultivation of human beings, not with expertise. Right. And my vision of this, my vision of the professor is a vision that is oriented towards the cultivation of students, towards teaching, rather than towards the accumulation of knowledge. Because part of the problem with the idea of the humanist being involved in the process of accumulation of knowledge is that the fundamental questions that a humanist deals with are not subject to empirical resolution. They're not subject to uh, clarification by the mere accumulation of data. What is my responsibility to my neighbor? What is the nature of, well, how does one live with an awareness of mortality? What is the nature of justice? Who should have political power? What does equality mean? How do we balance equality with, what do you balance equality with liberty? These um, are questions that require wisdom, not expertise. Exactly, exactly. And they are questions that are and need to be at the heart of a humanist education. So, Except that, but, as you said, humanists don't believe in wisdom anymore. Exactly. And, exactly. I think and, that, and, 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 and that's what Menand, I think, recognizes, that we have a really fundamental disagreement. And, you know, what he does is a smear job rather than try to uh, address the disagreement honestly. But disagreement is real. So how do we reach our colleagues in the humanities who, by and large, are a bit posty-toasty, right? So we can't just say, well, hey, education is about the good and the true and the beautiful because they don't believe in these things. 
What's our way in with them? Yeah. You know, is there a way, way in or do we just need to fight to the death? What? <laughs> no, I mean, there, there, there are, there are a couple of things. One is you can't, you can't mandate it, right? It, it can't be like, you know, like some people try to, through diversity training mandate, like higher racial awareness or something. You can't, you can't impose this on people. You have to make people fall in love. You have to make people have intellectually transformative experiences. And that's why the tradition depends on, on human bonds on human relationships, the relationship between the student and the teacher, right? You alluded to that before. Same thing happens with the colleagues. We need to find like-minded or at least like-oriented individuals and pursue intellectual pedagogical projects that are satisfying to us and that are transformative for the students. So find the people in your in your campus or find the people in the campus next door who share a vision of education of this type and, and do things together, teach courses together, teach uh, sections of the same syllabus, get involved in in administration, you know, get, getting 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 committees, advance your vision. I have found that in the university, the ideas that prevail are not the best ideas. They're the ideas that are most persistently advanced. And so, so, so it takes that. It takes persistently advancing what you believe in. And those are the ideas that, that tend to win out in the university. There are ways. And you know, there, there are grants, there are foundations and, and outfits that support this kind of education. Find them and apply for those grants and get speakers in, get summer seminars in, get professional development in, get student conversations going. The thing about the liberal liberal education is that we have we have the goods. Students love this stuff. Students are transformed by this. Students yep. live for this kind of intellectual experience and, and we got it. And so do faculty. So we have the goods. Um, we need to be more aggressive and bold in advancing them. Yeah, I mean, I think... We also need to look at the models that we currently have to imitate, right? So there is a model mm-hmm. at Columbia. There is still something of a model at the University of Chicago, which is which is right. where I was. You know, my, my title at the University of Chicago, I was a junior fellow in the Society of the Liberal Arts. And everyone mm-hmm. in the society has to teach in the core curriculum. And this was the first time that I taught a great book's sequence. So I taught in the original Human Being and Citizen, you know, which was created by Mortimer Adler and various other 'er (laughs) ne'er-do-wells in Chicago. (laughs) And it was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. It's the best teaching that I've ever that I've ever done yeah, in the sense yeah. that for me, it, I'm sure in some sense it was like the worst teaching I've ever done because <laughs> I just had no, I just was thrown in, you know, yeah. the lion's den and I'm like, Homer, Genesis, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a lot of interesting stuff here. I mean, I really had no clue. Nevertheless, like it, it just, it was an amazing experience. And I think there was, an institutional structure in which it made sense. And one thing that was really helpful and ought to be duplicated when we think about creating these kinds of core programs, if we ever find a university administration that's open to doing that. So we had to meet every Monday of every week, like in the morning, everyone who was teaching in the sequence had to get together to discuss that week's text. And so like when we were doing Homer, 
was, I think his name was Redgrave. Anyway, this incredibly uh-huh. famous Homer scholar uh-huh. would lead the discussions. And when we did Dante, you know, the resident Dantisti would, right, would right. come and lead the discussions right. and also just be available to answer questions mm-hmm. about the text. And of course, you're only teaching small, discrete chunks every mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of, that's an interesting model to me because yeah, you, yeah. Have the, you have the expert and then you have what Manon calls the dilettante. Right. <laughs> and they are, they are both teaching in the right. sequence. And of course, when it came time for me to teach Plato and Aristotle, like I was the expert. Yeah. And yeah, I mean that. that so you that, need absolutely, you know, you need and benefit from the expert. Um, that's it's just it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that we can kind of come together, come together, and each of us contribute our expertise to this collective endeavor. Yet, when the expert, you know, when the expert dentista comes in, or dentisti, I think you pronounced yeah, it. Yeah. When the Dante expert comes in to talk to, you know, say twenty other people who are teaching the class who are not Dante experts. Um, the Dante expert comes there not to display their mastery of like the secondary scholarship on the inferno. The expert comes there to, to tell you, okay, if you are going to present this to an 18 year old who's reading it for the first time, who has no interest in Italian literature and who will probably never read it again, what do you do with the text? That's right. what they are addressing. And it's ex- it, the fact that they do it from a position of expertise, the fact that they have that kind of broad context in which to do it makes it very, very powerful and incredibly useful. But it's an entirely different function and task than what they do in their Dante seminar. Right. And for this reason, I don't know if you experienced this, some of these experts are actually entirely incapable of doing that task, of telling you as a first-year <laughs> instructor... Who, how to teach this to somebody who's reading it for the first time and who has no, no pre-existing interest in it. So they find themselves unable to do that. So it is a, even though it is so powerful when it's done from the position of expertise, expertise alone isn't what's, what's, what's being activated in order to do it, to do it well. I agree with that. And I think that one of the benefits of this community, and it was a community, it was it was a genuine mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. of the liberal arts. And because it, it had these junior fellows and we were all postdocs, and then it has these senior fellows who are professors at the university who teach in the core sequence. You know, it's just part of their regular teaching. And so, yeah, they're experts, you know, with regard to a range of texts that are being taught, but they also teach this stuff in the core. Right. right? And they've right. been doing it for years. I mean, some of these people had been doing it for 30 years. And so they know what they're doing. It really, it, I, I think it's a great model. I think yeah. it's a, I think it's an amazing model now, a big difference between Chicago and Columbia is that Chicago, they have all these different cores. And as an undergrad, right. you just like choose. And, and some right. of the cores, I think, are a little bit wonky. It's, it's very funny. Chicago, I have some friends who teach, a, teach a, a Chicago um, in the core. And so I think Chicago's program is weaker than Columbia in that, in the fact that there isn't a commonality of intellectual experience and, and therefore 
um, you have you have the potential for kind of loss of rigor and coherence, which is the yeah. problem of right. general education overall. Chicago does have a, a, a very significant strength that Columbia lacks, which is faculty culture that's committed to teaching in the core. You're required yes. as a faculty member in the arts and sciences in Chicago to teach in the core, not at Columbia. Columbia is voluntary. Um, so that means that the core is much less entrenched in the faculty culture. And that makes a huge difference. So, I you know, I, I, I wish I wish that you could merge those two strengths um, right. and you would have you would have, I think, the the best conditions under which to do pursue the project. Yeah, it's true. I mean, maybe maybe something that's like a, a blend of of both would be yeah. ideal. Well, so I mean, we're we're gonna have to wrap this up soon, but I I just want to I just want to press you a little bit here at the end to say more about the upshot of liberal education in a way that is going to speak to parents. And the reason I say that is that in my experience, it is not the students that you need to convince. It is the parents who are paying the obscene tuition bills. Mm -hmm. And when you go to a parent and you say, well, I will give your student (laughs) self-knowledge. I will, you know, (laughs) give them like all these things. I think they're, they're not buying it. You know, I, I I think they're not buying it. I think they're like, hey, you know, I'm I'm killing myself to pay this tuition, and I want to see a solid return on my investment. The kid can get self knowledge on the side, <laughs> or something like that. I mean, how how do yeah. we sell this to parents? There are two, two really key things that we're not doing it that we're not doing, and which account for much of the of the difficulty. One is that we're actually not making the case for the same reasons that we have talked about. I mean, some of us are, obviously, but the profession, the humanities are not in general. When a parent encounters a humanist, a humanist professor, they are likely or too often encounter somebody who speaks a language they don't understand, who doesn't seem to be anchored in any of the values or human experiences that they identify with they're they're too often meeting like an uh, an alien and when they talk about why you should study the humanities they will also are, are too often here garbled indistinct vague uninspiring accounts take menan's piece right if you if you read menan's piece you don't walk away as a parent thinking oh maybe maybe my kid should should be a, a humanist Maybe my kid should, should study the humanities. That's one area. We're not making the case uh, because the case is so imperiled within the university. Then there's the other part um, that's at least as important is that, as I said before, we're not making a case. Uh, we're not making a zero-sum case. We're not saying you sh- your child should study the humanities instead of a practical education. We're not saying your, your, your child should major in art history instead of engineering. What we're saying is your child who wants to major in engineering, or maybe you want them to major in engineering, either way, your child who majors in engineering is going to be a far more effective engineer if they understand the humanity behind what engineering acts on. If they understand the fundamental condition of 
of a human in society, or at least that they have thought about deeply, seriously, rigorously, about what it means to be human in a society, they're going to be a better engineer. If they're going to be a software engineer, they're going to be able to design better programs if they understand something about the psychology of the individual. If they're going to be doctors, if they're going to be business people, regardless of the area that they choose, they are going to be better at it by having this human cultivation. So that's, that's, just, that's just really, really important because too often the argument is framed as you're either going to be a hard, an art historian who can't find a tenure track job or you're going to be you know, a business school graduate who makes a lot of money. Um, yeah. But that is a false dichotomy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a little bit tough on business schools myself. But um, <laughs> I, 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 sometimes I get these emails from business professors being like, why are you so mean to us? Um, to which I respond, I'm just trying to stay alive over here. Um, you guys are doing just fine. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one, one strategy that I think isn't just rhetorical, I mean, I think that it's true and might appeal both to administrators and parents is to talk about the fact that when you go into a lot of these more practically oriented majors like computer science or robotics, uh, stuff like this, you know, our capacity to create new technologies that change our brains and our ways of organizing ourselves and society really are far outstripping our capacity to understand them on a yeah. human level. Yeah. Sort of like, you know, the acceleration into the dystopia. Yeah. Seems like really scary. Yeah. And I think that this in itself is, you know, ought to be a, a kind of rallying cry for a, yes. for a more humanistic education. I mean, yes. you know, the university is clearly failing in some sense if it creates students who can make robots who can do things way better than humans or make AI, you know, that is so sophisticated to the point where it's kind of scary um, and not have a sense of, not have a clear sense of what their responsibilities are, their moral and political yeah. responsibilities right. or, you know, or, or have any way of thinking carefully about the question. You, I don't know, just, just odd yeah. questions. It's like, I can I, do this yeah. and yeah. I make a lot of money, but ought I to do it? And, and, it, and it's very clear that any kind of philosophy intro to ethics class that these kids are forced to take, which they're not even forced to take, that right. that's just one, one class that might fulfill a box on a list of boxes. Right isn't at all going to be sufficient, right? Mm -hmm. To equip mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. with the habits of mind that yeah. would be necessary to sort through this sort of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, MIT has a responsibility, mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, they, they are the ones that are, you know, they are the center of these advances in technology. So, don't they have a responsibility to be contextualizing that within the moral and political questions that it raises? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You and I are old enough to know the ways in which the world has been transformed, upended by just the internet. 
right? Like yeah. I, I got my first email address when I was a sophomore in college. And I have I have I have seen it all. Like my life is is un- unimaginable now from 30 years ago, right? 30 years ago I could not have imagined the life we live now, could not have imagined the world we live in now. You know, the next 20, 30 years are gonna be profoundly more disruptive and transformative. We haven't seen we haven't seen the beginning of it yet. I know. And and we as humanists, it's like we carry the Ark of the Covenant. We carry the the legacy, the wisdom, the accumulated insight into the human experience. And that is going to be utterly critical as the basic conditions of our humanity, of our species, are, are, are challenged and transformed. I mean, whether it's artificial intelligence or life extension or genetic manipulation, all of these things are in front of us and they are going to be part of our social reality in the next decade, the next two decades. And how we deal with them will literally determine the course of humanity. And it's our job, you know, and, and that certainly is MIT's job. But it's yours, yours and my job too, to right. take our education, our exposure, our training in that humanist tradition and equip our students to bring those insights to bear into the new world. I have a colleague who says that, that, you know, when, that when she's teaching, she's not trying to change the world. She's trying to shape world-changing minds. We're not trying to solve the world's problems. We're trying to create the minds that will solve the world, to, to help shape the minds that will solve the world's problems. So it, it is a, a responsibility and in this moment of, of human history, I think more important than ever to include this as part of an education, to not imagine that an education is just about the acquisition, mastery, and manipulation of knowledge, that there is this other thing that we must do as part of an education, and so much rights on it. The possibility of democracy rights on it. The ways in which we will be human rights on it. I could not agree more, and I could not have said it better. So we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me, Roosevelt. That was really great. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly subscriber. For our next episode, I will be joined by Katie Carl, fiction writer and editor over at Dappled Things, to discuss Henry James' neglected gem of a novella, Washington Square. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.